This is the FutureX Podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's our host, Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Laura Hartley, founder of an online school for changemakers called Public Love Enterprises. She teaches people how to detox from capitalism, patriarchy, and supremacy culture. Her intention is to empower changemakers, activists, and entrepreneurs to radically reimagine the world, creating the conditions for social healing, collective thriving, and liberation. Laura, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me about Public Love Enterprises. How do you create a school for change makers and what do you teach? So we really focus on the inner work that we need to do for outer change. And, you know, what I mean by this is really three things. One, getting free of internalized systems like capitalism, patriarchy. You know, we firmly believe that we are the system. So whenever we're looking to change the world, we need to look inside ourselves and see the way that we are Mm. upholding and perpetuating the systems. Two, getting power so that we can really make real change. You know, so many of us sometimes are uncomfortable with that word power and what it means. So starting to explore it in more depth. And three, figuring out what is ours to do in this time. You know, we live in a really pivotal point in history where there is so much that needs to happen so fast. And understanding that each of us has a vocation, each of us has a calling, each of us has something that we are supposed to offer. So those are the three areas that we focus on at Public Love Enterprises, really helping changemakers to go in to do the work so that they can stay with long-haul work, so they can feel good about what they do, and you know, create a better presence on the planet. The inner work of social change. I wanted to delve into that a bit, because you just mentioned something which fascinated me, which was, we believe we are the system. We, we are so identified with the system. How do you work on dividing that or creating a boundary or what's, how do you start with that, which seems so huge? It is huge, isn't it? Um, You know, I think what I was saying when we are the system is understanding that very often we see the system as outside of us. You know, it's just something that's just kind of there, but it doesn't exist outside of humans, right? And it's existed usually for hundreds of years. So it's a generational thing. And really it's a mindset and it's a belief that has been passed down and been perpetuated from generation to generation. Mm. It can't have been upheld without that. Now, when I'm talking about internalized capitalism as, you know, the most common example that we talk about, We're talking about a mindset that says we always need to be doing more, that we need to be giving more, that we're not quite enough as we are, that there's not enough time, that there's not enough money, there's not enough resources. And so, of course, we feel this scarcity and we feel this hustle culture and then this manifests in us as burnout, as perfectionism, as this kind of overgiving. And we can't then change the system on the outside until we're also changing the level of the belief and mindset at which it appears. So there's a lot of layers to this, depending on the system that we're looking at, depending on the individual that we're looking at, depending on whether we're doing this work primarily for external purposes or whether we're also doing it to like, you know, get free in our own lives. But really it's about coming back to understanding the system, understanding the ways that it shows up within us, and then redirecting ourselves to a new compass. You know, finding a compass isn't those thoughts, isn't that belief system, and finding something that's a little bit more authentic and a little bit more regenerative. Let's talk about climate change and the climate situation as one example of this. It's a huge problem. It's kind of immobilizing. 
it is something that we've been blamed for in an odd way. There's a current, there's a theory which I've been reading up on a bit where we've been sort of sold this idea that we are the people who mess this up. But in reality, there's toxic chemicals that are put out into the world. There's uh, fossil fuel companies that have created this whole system of power generation and sustaining our cities. And our idea is, well, we should, it's our problem because we asked for all that stuff, but we didn't really ask for all of that stuff. We didn't ask for the plastic gyre in the ocean. You know, we didn't ask for many things that have just sort of our fault. So how do we, where to begin is what I'm thinking of, not only for a change maker who does this as a vocation or avocation, but just for an everyday person, it seems kind of immobilizing. So what would be your thoughts for someone who says, wow, I don't even know where to start? Oh my gosh, I love this question. Um, I mean, there's so many layers to how I want to answer this and and things to think of. You know, if, I think when we're looking at climate change, it's, it is important to know, it is actually a system problem and it's not the fault of individuals. And I think we've been sold a lie now, certainly for the last 20, 30 years, that, you know, if we just reduce our individual carbon footprint, that, you know, if we just like cycle a little bit more and if we recycle and all of these things that we'll be fine. And that's not true because this is a massive problem. And like, really, this is a systemic problem and it has its roots in capitalism. It has its roots in extractivism. And there, it's not something that you or I as individuals in this moment right now have a huge amount of power over and it is something that still we participate in and that we have agency to try and change so what I'm talking about with we are the system you know is recognizing that there are system problems that exist you know when I'm looking at climate change as an example I'm looking at capitalism being just one system that is a major contributor to that because we cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet it's just not possible Capitalism is also a system with a huge amount of scarcity embedded within it. So if we want to get to the root of climate change, we need to get to the root of two things. One, our economic system. And then two, the other root in it, which is the root of disconnection and separation. The idea that we are somehow separate from the planet. We are somehow separate from every other ecosystem that exists uh, and that we're separate from each other. And obviously there is policy work to do here. There is the work to do of reimagining our economic system, of supporting businesses through a transition, supporting individuals, supporting the end of certain industries. All of this needs to happen. But for all of it to become a true transformation and not just a tweak in the system, we need to also look at the ways that we are living out these very same mindsets. So what is the same way that I am living out this disconnection? What is the same way that I think that I am somehow separate from my neighbor and what is happening to them? How can I start to reconnect to myself a little bit here? What are the ways that I'm acting from scarcity? You know, as a climate activist, one of the biggest things that I saw was this burnout, right? And this existed in part because there was this huge uh, time scarcity mentality that we need to act now, we need to go faster, we need to give everything that we've got. And absolutely, we do. But urgency doesn't always mean working faster. Sometimes it means slowing down. Sometimes it means working more intentionally. And so where can we start to really still change the systems, work at the level of the system, but also change the energy and change the belief and change the attitude with which we're doing that work? So to kind of answer the question of what can we do if we're overwhelmed by climate change, you know, I, the simplest answer is really starting to look at your community, starting to look at, you know, some activist groups that are out there, 
but also starting to look at this idea of getting free. What does it mean to follow a new compass? What does it mean to do something different to what society says? And to really find a new path that we can start to walk because all of us need to find our thing. Yeah, it's so much. If we keep doing the things that we've been doing, we're not going to get out of this trouble. It's just perpetuating. And you're, when I think about um, internalized capitalism, what really gels for me, what, what coalesces is hustle culture and how that leads to burnout. But what about someone who says, what do you mean internalized patriarchy? What do you mean toxic patriarchy? What am I going to do about that? And who, you know, who am I to do anything about that? You know, I, again, I think when we talk about like patriarchy, we're talking about a system of domination and control. You know, fundamentally, capitalism arose out of patriarchy. You know, white supremacy, I think, also to a large degree kind of arose out, out of patriarchy. There's all of our systems are kind of linked in, in many different senses. And so we need to look at, well, how does it manifest? It manifests as this idea of dominance, of control, you know, that man is above all other species, that man is separate to the earth, that men are superior to women, uh, you know, and all other gender minorities that exist that there's an element of separation. And then we can, one, look at the ways that we act this out. But then maybe also looking at the ways that perhaps, you know, as a woman here, uh, we're on the receiving end, that maybe very often we don't ask for what we want. We haven't been conditioned and trained to ask for what we want. We've been conditioned from a very young age, even unconsciously by society, to believe that we should be more caring, that we should be doing the work of kinkeeping, of looking after our families, of, you know... You know, somebody needs to take the minutes in this meeting. That's okay. I'll, I'll step forward and do it. There's a lot of this extra labor that goes to women or to femmes. And so how are we aware of what we're picking up here? These are the types of questions that we're starting to look at. You know, another example when we're talking about patriarchy that kind of shows up is this idea of perfectionism. And I think this is deeply intertwined with capitalism, this idea that we're not enough and that we need to be better, you know. And think historically, what was the idea for thousands of years of really how women were supposed to be. They were supposed to be quiet. They were supposed to, you know, look a certain way. There was supposed to be an appearance about them. There was, you know, they were supposed to be clean. They were supposed to be polite. All of these ideas that perhaps don't apply in the modern age, but really, you know, in our psyches haven't changed in that long. We're challenging a lot of these models that say that we were supposed to be one thing when really authentically, truly at our core, we're not. So we're looking to get to the root of how can we find a more authentic compass and know what is ours and what is truly my views, my thing to speak into the world, the way that I want to be. And what is the way that I've been conditioned to think that maybe I should be a little bit different. I shouldn't ask for this, that it's not okay, that it's not enough. So it's many different layers depending on what we're talking about, but there's a lot that we can start to explore. You have a very robust online presence. You have a website for this project, for your work. What are your must-haves for a safe, inclusive, diverse, healthy online community? What do you need to see? Okay, so I, I really like this question because I think, again, there's, a, there's kind of a few things to speak to. One is I really liked, I think it was Kelly Deals who recently said that she doesn't call her online space a community. She calls it a gathering space, in part because it's not entirely possible to, to have what is a real community online and that there are some dangers in calling it 
a community. And I, I should say I use that word community, but I really appreciated this perspective because it's not the same thing as what we're having in real life. You know, so there's a couple of things that I take into account. One, when I'm ever holding live courses, so I'm on a Zoom call with lots of people, is I believe in co-creating a participant agreement at the beginning of the course. Now, this is just a set of guidelines that we create together about how we want to be. If we put it out to the group to throw things out, it doesn't all come from me, but it usually includes things like, you know, perhaps paying attention or putting our phone on silent or there's no stupid questions. You know, th these kind of rules that we kind of, we agree. And most of us intuitively know these, but putting them together into a space, like collectively, I think makes a real difference. It makes the space feel safer and it means that people have agreed to something and that makes a difference. The other thing though, that when we're starting to talk about perhaps things like Facebook groups or you know, any other kind of more digital space, I think it's recognizing that as hard as it is for it, you know, especially as any coach running a group, it's not a democracy. These are not community spaces. These are spaces that actually need to be maintained. So how well can you actually keep track of what is being said in the group? What type of material do you want to allow in there? And having some strong rules and some strong boundaries around what can be discussed and how things can be discussed and what language can be used is actually important if you want to keep it safe. So there's many different areas to consider, but I think those are some of the highlights. Yes, yeah, safe. Let's talk about that for a sec, because that's actually pretty hard, I think, because you want freedom. You want people to be, feel that they can say what they need to say. But you could all, you also have to be aware that people could say something that's just either just plain old dumb or offensive or insensitive to the other members of the group. It involves what? This is my, I have a question in here somewhere. I'm getting to it, I'm building up to it. What are, what do you need to be considerate of? What do you need to be aware of? And how well do you need to know the group? to take the temperature of the group, to know what the boundaries are there and what would feel safe to that group? How do you, how is it done? And maybe this is a question that maybe these online groups aren't supposed to be safe. You know, there is an element that they need to be hmm. safe in one sense. You can't have hate speech going on. You can't have accusatory remarks. You can't have, you know, this complete spread of misinformation. Like, you know, there's an element of safety with that. But at the same time, we're also very particular about feeling comfortable in these groups, right? About nothing should be said that makes us uncomfortable. And I think sometimes that puts us in a little bit of a bubble. So I, I think there is a line to be drawn between actually maybe what, it, what is safe and what is uncomfortable and, and where that line is. Now, this is when I was coming back to a little bit before when I said it's not a democracy. I think too often it's easy to look to the group as to what should be allowed here. But like if you're a solopreneur or if you're a coach and you have just like a very small to moderate size group, then you kind of got to work with, with what you have and your resources that you have. And that means I think you need to set the boundaries around what is allowed and what is not. You know, what are the terms that you want to have for people coming into this group? You know, this is the struggle with the term community when we use it online because it's very different to if we're using community in our neighborhood, if we're using community in our church group, if we're using community, you know, in our activist movements, like it's very different when we're coming into somebody else's online space and recognizing as well that most of us online are, it's a lot easier to say something online that we would never say in real life. And that's what can also spiral out of control. So I think having those, those rules around, okay, what is hate speech? What is the t things that are allowed? What are the responses that are allowed? Perhaps what is the response limit? 
that we allow to go back and forth between people can help to minimize some of these effects. But ultimately, it's never going to be 100% safe. It's never going to be 100% comfortable for everybody. When I write a podcast description or when I teach a course, I'm aware of trigger warnings. I'm aware that there's going to be a topic maybe 20 minutes into the podcast that I'm producing. We're going to talk about rape or we're going to talk about something. And I will tell people, I may have to do it now in this episode description, that that's coming up. And to give people the ability to say, I'm in for that or I'm not in for that. Uh, I think that becomes important. I, uh, to be honest, I used to think, well, so what? You just talk about what you talk about. But I don't think that's fair to people anymore because we're there's such a fire hose of information and ideas and stuff coming at us that we someone should help us out a little bit. We're also not always choosing what we consume, right? Like this, think about the way the algorithms work. Like you know, the amount of times every day we open up Instagram or Facebook, we open an email or whatever it is. Like we are inundated with information all day, every day. And so I think trigger warnings and content warners do provide us with an opportunity to have a little bit more consent over what we're being exposed to, a little bit more consent over what I want to take in for my information, for my energy, for my well-being today. So I do agree that I think there is absolutely a place for them. And also, what about outreach? I'm looking at when I'm, say, casting the people for this podcast, I'm very clear with myself and I say, well, do I have enough women? Do I have enough people of color? Uh, Are different viewpoints represented here? Does everybody look like me or not? And ages ago, I would probably not even think about that for a second. I would just say, well, let's just get a bunch of interesting people and we'll talk about topic Z. But I don't think that way anymore because of representation, uh, not so much inclusion, but just because I want to represent a diverse viewpoint because I think so many people, it's been shown so many times that diversity improves conversations, improves companies. It's a good thing to have diversity. How do you approach that? When you're looking at, say, the constitution of a new cohort coming up that you're working with, is it something you think about and, and can you do anything about it? I think about it definitely, yes, in terms of, say, my own podcast. Like, I am, I'm very conscious about having a variety of guests on from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of identities. I think it definitely adds to a more robust and interesting conversation. In terms of my actual courses, I think about it less. And I think that's because there's less control over who enrolls in courses. You know, it's wonderful and I think it's important in our marketing, in, uh, in all of our work, in our language, to be inclusive and to be open of everybody. But at the same time, you know, and I say this, I've had people enroll in my courses now from about 12 different countries, which is wonderful. So there's people from a huge variety of backgrounds and places that are coming to this work. But it's not something that I can control. And so because of that, it's not something that I'm going to include. It's like, oh, well, I need to make sure that this next cohort of people has, you know, X number of people from here and X number of people from here, other than ensuring that my marketing does its best to to not be biased in that regard and to open it up and to be a little bit more inclusive. But definitely when looking at, uh, at online summits that I've been a part of, you know, looking at talks that I'm a part of, groups that I want to participate in, I want to ensure that there's representation there. And so that is something that I can do is also, you know, if 
if I'm fortunate enough to have a platform to also be like, well, you know, who else is on this? How can we ensure that there is diversity? And I think that has more meaning than looking at the school as a whole and the students who come through it. Sometimes it's actual work to find people, to get people. Or if I'm a producer of an event, say I'm a, a speaker and I say, you know, you don't have any women on this panel. I'm asking that producer to do a little extra work of the producer of the panel. But I think that's part of it now. I think they just have to. I think it's what we need to do because of all the things that we started talking about is if we're going to look at systemic change, well, you got to start right now with, you know, what we're doing right now. Uh, I don't think it, we're all connected. Is You said, you know, you were kind of talking about that a bit. There's a, we don't, shouldn't consider ourselves as separate from everyone else. Uh, and the, what people see in our, the, what we put out there, the courses, the panels, the podcasts, well, they should really reflect what we think needs to be out there. It is uncomfortable to address this at first. Like I think back as well, even just thinking about like jobs that I was in years ago and like looking around and like everybody at that company was white, you know, that was something that wasn't challenged. It was something that, you know, as I was growing up, I wasn't even taught to necessarily see. So it's only as we start to learn these things that then we have the ability to see them. And then we have the ability to become aware of, well, what's my participation in this? You know, where have I opened doors? Where have I looked beyond the people that are in my usual circle or my usual network and started to challenge the, the lens of which I'm looking that we can start to make real change? So the, I think this is so important that we start to do this. And as we're saying, you know, doing it at the level of who we're hiring, who we're contracting to, the panels and the networking events that we're a part of, and where we can to our own communities, I think is really important. So speaking of community or gathering, online gathering, uh, what is your advice to someone who maybe they have them some thoughts about being a coach, or maybe they want to do an online course, or maybe they want to create some gathering community around their work as a writer or artist. What are your thoughts? Where should they begin? What are some of the baseline ground rules that they really should be considering? One thing I'd probably look at here is, do I want to build a following or do I want to build a community? Because these are two different things. You know, I think we confuse the two and I, like I'm guilty of that myself for a long time. And so really recognizing that actually a lot of us, you know, as coaches or as, as thought leaders or as artists, you know, we want to build a following. We want people who understand and connect with our work and who can engage with our work. And that's a very different dynamic to, you know, as an activist with my activist hat on, I want to build a community and I want to build, be part of uh, being, creating a robust and a diverse and a connected community. So these are two different spaces that I want to be in. So when I can see that, then I have a little bit more agency of what I'm doing. If community is what I'm wanting to build, I think we need to look at, well, what is community? You know, who do I, what do I want it to center around? What is our shared common value? What is our shared belief? What are we all offering to this space? How do we want it to enrich our lives? And then how are we going to deal with the very, you know, uh, the messy bits, the conflict, the uncomfortableness that does come up in community? Because you cannot have community, real community, without also having something as messy and uncomfortable. So what I would recommend to anybody, particularly coaches, particularly anyone in this space who's wanting to think about this, which one is it? And if it's a following, understanding that, again, use Facebook groups, use uh, Mighty Networks, use these spaces, but it's not a community. 
So it's a very different intentionality and you need to have rules and guidelines about what is appropriate in that space. Are there any recommendations or ideas you would have for platforms to try and platforms to avoid? I mean, I think Facebook as a group, if you're using it for groups, is yeah, not worth using. I, I mean, one, you're always sub you're subject to meta and all of their problematic um, issues, right. you know, depending on what you want to participate in. You're subject to their algorithm. Uh, things don't get seen. You know, there's a, there's a lot more uh, room for our people to come in and kind of be more disruptive, I believe, on Facebook. I mm -hmm. only as a participant have I been part of Mighty Networks groups for various other people that I follow, and I have always found them actually a good space. It's different because you're not on Mighty Networks every day, right? It's not like Facebook mm. or Instagram where you're opening it up and you're going to scroll. You're going there because you want to see what is happening. And it's very uh, it's well organized. You're able to collate things. You can reach out to people. So I can't say as a host of a Mighty Network group if it's any good, but as a participant, right. I would be recommending people check that out. And what about things are pivoting a bit. We had gone totally online with just about everything through the pandemic, and now some real-life events are coming back. Where, do you, where have you landed in that? Do you think that this can be done, meaning social change and change in general, can be done in a platform like this? Or must it always aspire to being in person? Or doesn't that matter so much anymore? Oh, I like this. It's a, it's got me thinking, you know, this, you know, I started this online school over the pandemic. So I've definitely seen a noticeable shift, you know, over those years when so many of us were in lockdown in various places that of course, you know, we're happy to do everything online, you know, I joined Zoom calls, signed up for them all the time. Now, okay, I'm quite intentional with what I sign up for online. I have to want to do it online. Mm -hmm. And I have to want to do it online because there isn't really that energy connection, right? Yeah, I have the benefit that I can stay at home, that I can do it at a time that suits me, but I'm not really meeting anyone. I'm not building a relationship out of it occasionally, but mm -hmm. rarely. And so it has to be an interesting topic that I can't do in person. So for me as a as business owner who runs an online school, I've noticed that shift and that's something that I'm definitely looking to provide. In terms of activism and social change, I think there's a little bit of a balance here. You know, the change happens in real life. The change doesn't matter what we say in the digital world. It has to be reflected in real life. It has to be embodied into the world. And so we need activist networks. We need communities that are coming together somewhere, you know, physically where we can see and touch each other. Mm. But there's also nothing wrong with using this. Digital spaces are a tool. You know, particularly for coaching, particularly when I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, particularly for online courses, I wish I could offer this in every city of the world, but I can't. I can only offer it from where I am. And so it gives people an opportunity to, to participate in something larger, to meet people from very different networks they wouldn't have the opportunity to meet if it was all just in real life. Uh, and yeah, to, to maybe also play with things in a way that we're sometimes too afraid to you know, when we're all so kind of together mm -hmm. in person. You know, sometimes it's safer when we can turn our camera off and be on mute and, you know, just listen in. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an either or to that. It's not an either or. There's a little bit of a both and to that question and there's space for, for both to emerge and to go forward. The risk idea is very interesting. I was thinking about that because there's a lot less risk in doing it like this. I could always... I was just thinking that very thing, what you just said. I could just turn off my camera and, or, and you know... Tune out a little bit. But what you brought up made me think, 
it's also the other side that we might be willing to take a little bit more of a risk and try to meet with a group or try to do something when it's like this as an entry point because it's a little easier. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. Absolutely. And there's something to that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, li- it's much less of an investment than having to go in person, you know, which sometimes might mean right. going a long distance. It means, uh, you know, also from like a privileged perspective, needing to have something to wear, to show up, you know, some of us like struggle with anxiety in different groups. Like there's, there's right. a lot that online sometimes has to offer as much as it also detracts. There are a few things on your site that really caught my eye and we don't have to hit every one of them but a few things i wanted to ask about connecting community purpose politics as embodied spirituality that caught my eye uh i do yoga i meditate i wouldn't call myself at all religious but i'm getting more comfortable with the idea of thinking of myself as spiritual but what is embodied spirituality in connection to community and purpose yeah so all of my work i kind of talk about as like self-work for world work and you know whenever we're looking at self-help or personal development or spirituality and we're looking at it without a lens of also collective liberation we're looking at it without a lens of also the world and how is the world going to be a better place then it's just another form of capitalism it's just another form of like this i need to be better I'm going to create my own personal enlightenment and I need to strive for more. It's a very narrow focus. And a lot of the ways that we currently approach the idea of spirituality is something that it's very, is very internal. It's very much just for us. It's something that we practice on our mat or our cushion. And I believe it is something that really we need to translate into the world. You know, spirituality is really just, it's our deepest values. It's our deepest beliefs about the world and what is sacred and what is meaningful to us. And there are elements there that transcend all religions, that transcend every country on earth around compassion, around grace, around hospitality. And these things shouldn't just apply for our personal lives and those things. Our politics should be a robust expression of this. You know, what is politics if not our collective choosing of who and how we want to be together? It is our largest form of community. But it has been hijacked to uh, be seen as something that's dirty or it's jaded and, you know, it's all about career politicians and can't make real change and all of these stories that I think are fundamentally untrue. So when I'm talking about as embodied spirituality, what we're really talking about is infusing the ways that we come together, infusing our policies, our politics at every level with value, with compassion with care for one another, with gratitude, with hospitality. And one of the ways I see this really a a good kind of practical, robust example is in the model that Bhutan uses of gross national happiness. So like I was really fortunate to visit Bhutan a number of years ago. And they're this tiny Himalayan kingdom nestled between like India and China. And they're famous for this development philosophy of gross national happiness, which really measures the happiness of their people. And it sounds simplistic, But there's a lot of metrics to this where they measure education, time use, living standards, good governance, and any policy that wants to be created theoretically should go against this set of values. Is this going to contribute to the overall well-being of our country? Mm. Now, Bhutan has managed to create that, I think, with a very different background to us because you know, there's in it, obviously coming from an Eastern Buddhist background, you know, we are coming at it from a much more capitalistic point of view. But to me, that's embodied spirituality. 
that's saying, hey, these practices mm-hmm. that I care about, about caring for myself, caring for others, and caring for the planet, are translated into the actual governance of who and how we want to be together. I would love to see that come into more of our communities here in the Western world. This also calls up ideas of power. People may think of themselves as, well, power, that's for politicians, or power corrupts, or maybe the opposite. We are weak and powerless. You know, we can't, we're just being acted upon all the time. But you've spoken about how to claim power, how to wield it, and how to be comfortable using it. So what's a first step to that? It sounds good, but let's say I'm pretty scared of that idea or it just seems like something I wouldn't, you know, that seems like maybe that's being mean to someone or something, you know, whatever someone would come up with. How, how did, what's the first step with wielding or being comfortable about power? Well, that's the patriarchal idea of power, right? That power means power over, mm. that it means domination, That is the main idea we have in our culture of what power is. And I think that that is an incredibly, I mean, it's the most disappointing, but also one of the weakest forms of power. You know, there's also power that we have that is embodied. There is power we have that is shared. There is collective power. So it's about learning how to read a room for power so that when we're in a room and there's decisions being made, we can see the power dynamics that are at play. You know, whether that is talking over somebody, dismissing some ideas, whether that is... Uh, falling prey to our own victimhood and like feeling powerless so we don't even ask for what we want or you know we, we do it so resentfully understanding all of this is just power dynamics so let's first of all look at what is my belief around power do I think it's bad do I think it's dirty do I think it's shameful do I think I have any what do I believe if I start to shift the idea from power just being power over to also being power with collective shared embodied power And then what would it mean if I were to start to claim this, if I were to start to believe in my own sense of agency, to believe in my ability to connect with others and to organize, and to do so in a way that was rooted in kindness, that was rooted in compassion, but that also spoke a lot of truth and had a bit of backbone to it. So there's many ways that we can start to kind of break it down depending on circumstance, but fundamentally, yeah, it's shifting this idea that power is just this dog-eat-dog world, and that we just got to, you know, be in it to survive, because I don't think that's true. Well, we've touched on so many things today. I feel like we've gone from, like, or table to table laden with ideas and food for thought. Is there anything that I forgot that uh, I should bring in that we left out? My gosh, I, you know, I I think we've gone through so many different spaces as well. So we've covered a lot. (laughs) But I think fundamentally, coming back to this idea that, again, you know, what we're just talking about now with power plays into community too. If you're looking to create a community, that power over dynamic needs to be challenged. And what can really fuel and foster a community is a sense of shared and collective power. So what does that look like for you? What are you going to do with that power? How are you going to support one another? How are you going to manifest it into the world? And so when we can start to answer these questions, I think we can start to to be a lot more creative with what we're doing. It reminds me of what you said earlier, the difference between a following and a community or gathering. A following says to me, you all are my audience. You're going to take what I give you, more or less. But a community is much more of a living thing. And you do have to be more sensitive and just thinking about what the power dynamics, what as you said, what people are thinking and saying and how this is working. You have to kind of 
at the risk of being abstract, you have to take more of a systems approach. You have to back out of it and say, well, how is this working? How are people really with each other? Yeah, and what is it offering them? Like, what, what is that community offering? Because not every community is offering us something. Sometimes, you know, they get a little bit toxic. Sometimes they, you know, start to bring us down. So what is this community offering and how are we being with each other? These are the questions we want to ask. What are the values? And what do these values look like? Not just in thoughts, not just in words, but in action. I think that's a great place to leave this and wrap up because it pretty much says it all. Laura, where can people find you online? Uh, LauraHartley.com. I'm also on Instagram at laura.h.hartley, and I can be found on LinkedIn as well. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us on the Future X podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show. For more info about Future X, visit futurex.studio. Thank you.